Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians, chapter 3. As Paul seeks to bring the Galatians back from the brink of deserting not simply the gospel, but deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. He chooses to tell them a series of stories. His story, their story, the story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise, and the story of the law. The story was that of the promise. And with the wonderful story of the promise comes the inevitable question, not only for the Galatians and the men from Jerusalem, who are troubling them, but for us as well, what then was the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? As we've seen, the law was a necessary part of the intervening story between the promise and its fulfillment. There's a story within a story. Many who have read Paul have assumed that he regarded the law as a bad thing. And the passage that we looked at last week in chapter 3, some might think that, something that needs to be swept away. And if you think this, you've really misunderstood Paul. A few verses from his other letters will demonstrate this. I'll just mention two. In Romans 13, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And then in 1 Timothy 1, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Well, here in Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul writes, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. A promise had been made to Abraham that through his seed salvation for the nations, for the Gentiles, would come. Later, 430 years after the promise was last spoken to Jacob, the law was given to show that sin was in fact sin. The word transgression requires a law. To transgress means to breach, to break something. Something has to be there for it to be transgressed. From the time of Adam and Eve onward, the human race has been in ruins. It is the law that shows this to be the case, that human beings are transgressors by nature. We are transgressors of God's commands, just like our parents, Adam and Eve, who transgressed the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The purpose of the law is to, in a sense, expose, to show this to us, that this, in fact, is true of us as well. This is the condition of humanity. And it is because of the law that we can see that, in fact, we need the promise to be fulfilled. We have need of a Messiah, the promised one. In verse number 23, Paul says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So I mentioned last week the English Standard Version is much clearer than the NIV here that So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So I mentioned last week the word uh, used in Greek, in English, has come across as pedagogue. It's used to describe a trusted, usually elderly slave, who, in wealthy families, they would go down to a slave market and purchase such a person. And this person, 
had the responsibility of disciplining and raising the master's children, particularly the male heirs. Such a person was not a teacher as such, but in fact was a disciplinarian. Just parenthetically, the King James gives the impression by using the word schoolmaster, but that's not what is intended here. Rather, it is someone who would discipline the child. And would, the child would be under this pedagogue until he reached a particular age. More often than not, the discipline that was inflicted was, in fact, harsh and cruel. And so when Paul refers to the law, the law as a pedagogue, it seems a safe assumption that he has something negative rather than positive in mind here. It wasn't the function of the pedagogue to build up the self-esteem of this child or to shower him with affection. It was to discipline him, to chastise and to rebuke. The law, just like a pedagogue, is always pointing out our failures. In verse 25, as I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week, we find the transition from the story of the law to the story of faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. At a certain point, the pedagogue has worked himself out of a job. He no longer has a job. The child has grown up. Supervision is no longer necessary. But what does this statement mean? now that faith has come. Well, in this verse, we come, in fact, to the story of faith. Before we get to that, just to take a, a moment to review at how Paul has used the word faith thus far in this letter. One time in chapter 1, Paul says that he preached the faith. That's the only time we find it used in that particular way. In chapter 2, we find the word faith mentioned three times, twice in verse 16 and once in verse number 20. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. It's actually three, three times in that verse. And then in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is, if you wish, the faith chapter in this particular letter. The word faith appears 12 times uh, in this chapter, be, uh, between uh, the beginning and the end, but twice in verse number 9 and twice in verse number 23. Um, and rather than read them all, I will leave that to you when you get the opportunity to go through. We come to chapter 4. Faith is not mentioned one time in chapter 4. In chapter 5, it's mentioned twice. And then in chapter 6, it is not mentioned again. So it's all sort of front-loaded, if you wish, that it is in chapters 2 and 3, but particularly chapter 3, that Paul speaks of faith. And I think that in verses 23, 25, and 26, we come to the heart of the matter, that is the story of faith. If you will notice, Paul uses faith in three ways. First of all, Abraham's faith, that God made a promise to him, and Abraham believed him. Thus, we are told in verse number 9, he is the man of faith. Secondly, Paul uses it in a general sense, in the sense of believing or trusting. Those who have faith, he mentions in verse number 9. And yet this is tied in with Abraham's faith. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But the third way that Paul uses it is faith in Jesus Christ. And we find this 
uh, in chapter 2, in verse 16, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, and in verse number 20, faith in the Son of God. And I would argue that this is what leads up to what we find in verses 23, 25, and 26. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Thinking in terms of story, the story of the promise, the action or the response is that we find in Abraham, that is, of belief, of trusting, of having faith. We see this in Abraham, we see this in those who are the descendants of Abraham, those who follow in his steps. We saw last week that Jesus is both the beneficiary as well as the fulfillment of the story of the promise. He is what the story points to. Thus, when it comes to these statements in verse 23 and 25, before this faith came, and now that faith has come, there has to be a connection, I think of necessity, there has to be a connection with one might, with what one might call the Jesus event, or the messianic event. That is, the coming of Jesus into the world. Otherwise, I think we will have a warped view of faith, but also a non Jesus, if you wish, a non-messianic faith. Let me see if I can explain this here. There are some who read this passage and mistakenly hear Paul saying that, you know what, guys, the law was hard. The law was a pedagogue. It was, in fact, a jailer. We were kept in prison by the law. It was hard. And God's like, you know, I should sort of lighten up a bit and, and give these people a break. So, okay, we'll get rid of the law, and now we will simply have faith. Let me read you one statement from a person who holds this view. While the old method, that is the law, was hard and difficult, the new, that is faith, is easy and within reach of all. This is not what Paul is saying. Faith must be seen, Paul is demonstrating, in connection with the Jesus event. So listen again. Look, if you would, at verses 23 and 26. Before this faith came... We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The coming of faith must be tied to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the story of the law. That story within the story has now ended with his coming. As I mentioned last week, Paul would later write to the Romans, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In the language of verse number 24, Jesus, the Messiah, was not under the supervision of the law. No pedagogue was necessary. He, unlike everyone else, reached maturity. You see, the law was a pedagogue, and this slave who was to be in charge was in charge until you reached maturity. Well, the Jews never reached maturity. We had not reached maturity, and so the law was still there. But then here comes Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the promise, and he reaches maturity. He learns obedience. He keeps the law perfectly. The law is no longer necessary. He is not under the supervision of the law. Thus, the law is no longer necessary. It is the end of the story. And Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the continuing story of the promise that through him all nations will be blessed. Through him we have all that is mentioned in verses 26 to the end of the chapter. 
Look, if you would, at verses 26 and 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Verse 26 must be seen in light of verse number 24. Verse 24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Uh, Here, uh, the NIV, I think, has has not helped us, and the uh, English Standard Version is much more helpful. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Uh, Our guardian. It had the responsibility of directing the life of the person or of the child under his care. But one son, as I mentioned, did in fact reach maturity. Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And we are called to identify ourselves with him, the faithful son. And how do we identify with the faithful son? By faith. By identifying, by trusting him and identifying ourselves with him. And we demonstrate this faith by obeying, just as he did. Jesus trusted the Father Therefore, he obeyed the Father. And if we put our faith in Christ, then we will obey him. And specifically, we see in verse number 27, in terms of baptism. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. One commentator has paraphrased it. You are all children of God through the faithfulness of the Messiah, Jesus. Because as many of you as were baptized into the Messiah have clothed yourselves with the Messiah. You have put him on. Why baptism? Why, why the ritual of baptism? Um, this question, I think, is particularly relevant for those perhaps who come from a tradition where baptism is the thing, that it is salvation itself. But the two things come to mind here. First of all, Paul would later write to the Romans something I think he had already told the Galatians, and that is that baptism is a symbolic identification with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Romans 6, he will write, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. As one is plunged into the water of baptism, And then emerges the story of Jesus, of his death, his burial, and his resurrection are reenacted. The life of Jesus is demonstrated in this act. And that we are joining with him in this story by reenacting his death, burial, and resurrection. At the same time, the story of our redemption, our story, is also being represented. That we who were 
sort of alive to ourselves, now die to ourselves. We no longer identify ourselves over here, but we identify ourselves with Christ. And so the old person is put to death and is buried, and the person who comes out is a new person. This is what is represented in baptism. So that's one reason, I think, why Paul chooses to speak of baptism. The second is, it is, in fact, the reenacting of our exodus, the story of our exodus, of deliverance from slavery, of redemption by the hand of God, and coming into covenant with God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea, that is, the Red Sea. Verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. A really startling statement. The Exodus is the single most important redemptive event in the Old Testament. In fact, if we do not have the New Testament, it would be the most significant redemptive event in Scripture. But it is, in fact, a picture of the coming of the Messiah. And his story is, in many ways, a reenacting of the story of the Exodus. Paul does this time and time again. He's doing it here, if we will listen, in Colossians chapter 1. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Exodus is in part a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. God had told Abraham, just know that your descendants are going to go into a foreign country and there they are going to be oppressed. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. This was the Exodus. But who got the share of this promise? The people of Israel. But in the new Exodus, which is represented by baptism, you see, in the old Exodus, they come through the Red Sea. They go through the water. No longer a nation of slaves. They are now a free people. They come out on the other side free. In the new Exodus, baptism is this event. And in verse number 28, we see that it is not based on ethnicity, on gender or social status, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here we come back to the confrontation with Peter, which Peter was hypocritical, eating with the Gentile brothers until the men from Jerusalem came, and then he and Barnabas and others separated themselves and said, we, we can't eat with you. And Paul says, listen, we've come through the new exodus. We are the new people of God. And in the new people of God, there is no ethnicity, there is no social status, there is no gender. What we have, in fact, is unity in Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I would mention, just in passing, something that I've mentioned before, that the issue here, the matter in this verse, is unity and not uniformity. We do not all have to be the same, but we are to be one in Christ Jesus. Ethnicity is not the deciding factor, contra the men who came from Jerusalem. And gender is not the issue. If you think about it, the emphasis on circumcision seems to put the focus more on men than it does on women. No, the issue is identifying yourself with the crucified Messiah. 
And Paul says at the end of this chapter that if you do this, Paul tells the Galatians, Peter, Barnabas, the men from Jerusalem, he's telling us, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promised land, the inheritance, it is in Christ. So being a Jew is nothing. And belonging to Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is everything. And if you belong to Jesus, then you are an heir to the promise. So I mentioned the language of being an heir should be seen in light of the Exodus story, the story of coming out of slavery and going to the land which is promised, the promised land. And in fact, this is the language that Paul continues to use in chapter 4, in the first seven verses, though I would argue it might not be immediately apparent. What does seem apparent is that Paul is continuing with the metaphor of being a child, being under the authority of others until reaching maturity. Look, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In verse 23 of chapter 3, he spoke of the prison guard, the jailer. Before this day came, we were held prisoners by the law. In verse 24, he spoke of the pedagogue, the disciplinarian. Now we read of guardians and trustees. And Paul draws the picture, he tells the story of the heir. That while he is still a child, his status is that of a minor. M-I-N-O-R. He is a minor. Okay? Until he reaches a particular age, the age set by his father. And in a real sense, he has no more right than a slave. He is subject to guardians and trustees. They have the responsibility and authority, the authority, even though they are slaves, to supervise him, to discipline him, and to control him. And their orders are to regulate and to restrain his behavior. And the child is, in fact, under their authority until the time set by his father. Then he is free from their control. He has full rights as owner and master of the estate. Okay, so that's the metaphor. What does it refer to? Well, look if you would in verse 3. Paul writes, So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles, principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. What does this mean? Well, I would suggest to you two things. First of all, the law belongs to the age of preparation, the preparatory phase of life. Verse 3, so also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. This must have been offensive to the men from Jerusalem. But Paul's already said some fairly offensive things to people who are clinging to the law. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says that the law comes after the promise. That's true. I'm not sure they want to be reminded. The law shows us to be sinners, verse 19. That the law was incapable of giving us life, verse 21. That the law actually imprisoned us rather than liberated us. And so here when he writes in verse 3 of the basic principles, um, okay, I'm sure they're offended, but 
at this point I think they're pretty hot with Paul already. The ESV has it more clearly here. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul's already alluded to this in verse 24 in the matter of the pedagogue. But how offensive it must have been to hear that the law is referred to as being elementary, basic. One might say unsophisticated because you're still a child. You have not reached maturity. You're not an adult. It's something for children. So the law belongs to the age of preparation. But secondly, the Galatians, and that means us by extension, belong to the time when the inheritance has been realized. Verses 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under, under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible and with the book of Galatians might be startled to find that the NIV does not use a word that we're very familiar with. That is the word adoption. The ESV has to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. For both Jews and Gentiles to become a son of God required adoption. That is to be in Christ. When one is adopted, one is then given the full rights of sons, as the NIV has it. If you think back to the Gospels, the idea of becoming a son of God or becoming a child of God was an issue that kept coming up or came up several times in the mystery of John the Baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 3, but when he, that is John the Baptizer, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Certainly an interesting way to begin a conversation. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't say, we're in, we are the children of Abraham. Uh, John says, I wouldn't be so sure. And then in John chapter 8, uh, a fascinating passage, particularly the first line of it, beginning in verse number 31. To the Jews who had believed him. I think many people miss that phrase. In this passage that I think you may be familiar with, Jesus is speaking to people who believe that he is the Messiah. He's not talking to the enemy as such. He's talking to those who claim to put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The language of John and of Jesus, I think, really point ahead to what Paul is going to say. Um, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're a son of God. I would be remiss if I didn't mention John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name... 
he gave the right to become sons of God. To become sons of God. So the Jews are thinking, we're in. We're the children of Abraham. We're in. And Gentiles, if you want to get in, you need to come over to our side of the equation. And Paul says, no. Actually, if you want to be a son of God, you must be adopted. You must be adopted, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And then you become a son of God. Paul tells the Galatians that they belong to the time after God sent his son. Jesus fulfilled the promise that was made in the presence of Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. He's born of a woman, fully human, born under the law. That is to say, he is Jewish. But more than that, as is evident from his circumcision on the eighth day, all the way to keeping the Passover before his death, Jesus kept the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Why? Why all this? To redeem those under law that we might receive adoption, the full rights of sons. And it's much more than just rights, legal rights. You know, sign the document, I want to be adopted so I have legal rights of inheritance. It is relational. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. Abba being a term of affection and endearment. God makes you his son. And not simply in a legal sense, you've been adopted, but in a real relational sense where we refer to him with affection. Verses 6 and 7, I think, make this intensely personal. You'll notice that Paul shifts to you. You are sons. You are no longer a slave, but a son. You are a son. God has made you also an heir. More than that, and we might miss it in English, even though it's there in verse number 7, the you goes from plural to singular. You are a son. God has made you also an heir. I find it interesting that at the end of chapter 3, Paul has finished telling the various stories and begins to make application. This is Paul's style, to give us doctrine and then to make application. And yet his doctrine he spells out in terms of story. But I think you should notice and, and mark it, uh, I think it's really of critical importance. You would think that after all that Paul has said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, that as he begins to make the application, we would be hearing the words faith and justification over and over again, because that's the whole issue. The men from Jerusalem said, listen, it's great that you believe in Jesus, it's great you believe in the Messiah, but you need to keep the law and you need to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, it is justification by faith. But now in chapter 4, we do not find these words. In chapter 5, only a couple of times, and not at all again in chapter 6. And we're like, Paul, what are you up to? I mean, you've told us the story of Abraham, of the curse, the promise, the law, the faith. And then you tell a story in making the application of the new exodus using the language of slavery, redemption, and inheritance, but not a peep about faith or justification. It really seems quite odd. It's almost as though he's emphasized it over and over again in chapter 3 and then simply backs away and doesn't mention it again. What does Paul talk about? here in chapter 4, the first seven verses. 
It's right there, but I think we might miss it. I think it is the key to any theological or doctrinal discussion, any discussion of the truth. Do you see it? It's in verse number six. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. I could also point to verse number four, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. To tell the story of Christian redemption, of the new exodus, to make the application, Paul doesn't talk about faith. He doesn't talk about justification. What does he talk about? He talks about Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. It was the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who sends the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Having been declared righteous or right in the sight of God is important. And trusting and believing in Jesus as the crucified Messiah is also important. But more important than that, or the basis of that, the foundation of that, is the reality of Trinity, the God who is the true God. Far too often we use the word God, but we don't think and we don't act or live in terms of Trinity. We may confess and profess that we believe that God is three in one. But in our thinking and our living, I wonder if it makes any difference at all. Are we aware or do we even care that God is three in one? You might ask, does it make a difference or what difference does it make? I would say it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, first, because it is true, but much more than that in how it is lived out in the world. We can say that God is love because there has always been love within the Trinity. God is eternal. God did not create us in order to have something to love. It wasn't that God was lonely and wanted something to love or for someone to love him. Read John chapter 7. There was love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the world was ever created. We can speak of a relationship with God because there has always been a relationship within the Trinity between Father, Son, and Spirit. This isn't a new thing. It isn't that God said, you know, I, I, I am desperately lonely and I want to have a relationship with someone. That would be contrary to his nature. But God, in fact, is a God of relationship. God is Trinity. If we do not begin our thinking with God as Trinity, I fear that we will lose our way. In my opinion, the men from Jerusalem, in fact, did not believe in Trinity. They did not believe in Father, Son, and Spirit. And thus Paul could write at the beginning of his rebuke of the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. I mentioned several sermons ago that when we think of heresy or apostasy, I think we think of it very impersonally. That is, that heresy is an opinion, doctrine, or practice contrary to the truth. That apostasy is defined as denunciation of one's religion, principles, or cause. That blasphemy is irreverence toward religion. As I said then, I will say again, I think Paul would reject all of these definitions. To Paul, it's all personal and it's all relational. And when the Galatians listen to these men from Jerusalem, they're not simply imbibing false doctrine. They are, in fact, in a sense, cutting away from a relationship with God. They are deserting the one who has called him, the God who is three in one, the God who sent his son 
and who has sent his spirit who now cries out in us, Abba, Father. To Paul, it's all personal, it's all relational, and it all rests on the reality of the triune God. If we do not see this, then I think we will lose our way. And then it will degenerate into merely a theological discussion about works versus faith. And somehow God is very conveniently set aside. And then we start to duke it out theologically. If you understand that Trinity is foundational, I think it will open up the rest of this letter. It will open up all of Scripture. Otherwise, when we read Paul, he will sound very abstract, very theoretical, very philosophical. If we do not begin our thinking, if we do not rest our thinking on Trinity, then we will miss the truth of who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come into your presence through the intercession of your Son, Jesus. Your Spirit helps us because we do not know how to pray as we ought. Far too often, we take truths to be impersonal, lifeless facts or principles. And even when it comes to something as important as becoming your sons, it becomes merely a transaction, a legal event. We are adopted. And in so much of our lives as your people, things have lost that sense of relational aspect and the personal aspect. It becomes dry and lifeless. Far too often when we say the word God, we do not think of Trinity forgive us of this and so often in our living we act as though you are not there and if you are there you're not there as Trinity forgive us for this may your spirit who lives within us who allows us to call out to you Abba Father work in our hearts and remind us of these truths that it all begins with you. You are the beginning. You are the ending. And you have called us to be your children. We thank you that you sent your son and that through him we can be adopted into your family. We can become heirs. It's a staggering thought. An amazing thought I think we take for granted far too often. May we think on these things. May we meditate on them in the days to come. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence with us every moment the coming week as we walk through this world. We pray this through Jesus. And in his name. Amen.